Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Jordan Puga. And I'm Paul Keelan. And today we are going to look at 1992's The Mighty Ducks. So this is the film that pretty much started the wave of 90s Disney sports kids movies. It came out on October 2nd, 1992. So we're still in the very, very beginning of the 90s, just coming out of the 80s. It was a very transitional time when the aesthetic of the 80s was just starting to transition into the 90s. The Mighty Ducks is the film we were probably looking forward to the most in this bracket. One of the reasons is that it came out first and really set the tone for all of the rest of these films. I'll give this to you. How much did this film gross? Was it a success at the box office? How did it do? Yeah, the film was a surprise success with audiences. It actually grossed close to $51 million in the U.S. and Canada, and obviously inspired two sequels with D2 and then D3, The Mighty Ducks. So obviously it had lasting power. It definitely did. It had a lot of lasting power. Additionally, it also had a good push for hockey culture. It being a film about hockey was kind of a gamble, and the idea that it would kind of push hockey and obviously create a team later around it is huge. It is huge. It really blew up the sport across the board, all over the country. The Mighty Ducks is single-handedly probably the most influential aspect of the rise of hockey, I, I would say, at the youth level. In fact, this film is so successful that right now Disney Plus is in the works of creating and, and will soon release a series about this same narrative and world and universe in which the great Emilio Estevez will return as Gordon Bombay. So this is a franchise that is still thriving even in 2020, which is quite unbelievable. So how did the Mighty Ducks do on home video rentals, right? Because this was the age where VHS rentals, Blockbuster, maybe even the local thrifties or Rite Aid were a major part of how a film made money. Yeah. And like you said, um, even when it came to home video, it made $54 million. It did better than it did when it's theatrical release. I remember trying to pick it up all the time at Blockbuster and it never had any in stock. So we'd go to the return box and see if it was there. So it was very popular, I remember. So anyways, let's uh, look at some of the other films that opened this weekend. So like I mentioned, it was the weekend of October 2nd to the 4th of 1992. It was a very strong opening, but not a great, great opening at the same time. Uh, it opened up in second place behind uh, what film? Oh, Last of the Mohicans, classic. Definitely a classic. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic in that film. So The Mighty Ducks came out and only made about $6 million, which seems like a failure. But in this era, $6 million isn't terrible. And it came in second place above a few other really classic films. There was Hero with Dustin Hoffman and Andy Garcia. There was Honeymoon in Vegas. Then it came out the same weekend as... Gary Glenn Ross even, which only made $2.1 million and sits at 12th place for that opening weekend, which is unfathomable today to think about knowing its cult status. A great film with Pacino, Baldwin, Spacey, Lemon, Ed Harris, so many quotable lines. It's just such a classic. I think it opened up at 12th place with $2.1 million is just hard to conceive. There's also another sports movie this weekend, and I know you particularly like this movie. And what movie was that? That'd be Mr. Baseball, starring the great Tom Selleck, where he's great baseball players, ends up being washed up and forced to play in Japan, falls in love with a Japanese woman over there. Very 90s baseball movie. I remember watching this one a lot with my father. 
So now let's get into the cast and crew of The Mighty Ducks. And The Mighty Ducks really started the career of director slash writer, who I want to start with, in Steve Brill. So Steve Brill has had a long and very successful career. He does all sorts of films, particularly with Adam Sandler and Judd Apatow. He's got his name on everything from Knocked Up with Apatow to almost all of Sandler's hits, The Wedding Singer, Big Daddy, and even his later films, which aren't so good, like Sandy Wexler, The Do-Over. Brill is a very prolific figure in Hollywood. He puts out a lot of silly films, but overall, he's had a very influential career. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Brill and the genesis of this film later. But now let's get into the cast. The cast of this film is fantastic. And it all starts with Emilio Estevez as Gordon Bombay. He's boyish, but then he's adult enough and slick enough to play the lawyer role. He also feels like he's this sort of pipsqueak Napoleon complex character who has, you know, a serious like inferiority complex. Yeah, he just really fits this role. He was a huge 80s star was the face of this film and really the driving factor behind its box office success. As many people also know, he's one of the Sheens, but he was not the first person considered for this role. In fact, comedian Bill Murray, the great Bill Murray, was also considered for the role, but the producers deemed him too old, ultimately. I believe they made the right decision. I love Bill Murray, but this film was tailor-made for Emilio Estevez. Who else is in this film that you particularly enjoy? Actually, the next one on our list would be Josh Ackland, who plays Hans, the sports good store owner, kind of Gordon's next father figure after his real father passes away in this movie. One of the strongest performances in the movie that he delivers along with Emilio Estevez, but Hans is soothing voice, that wise knowledge that he's able to pass down through the movie. Very strong character. Yeah, Hans is a very strong character, kind of similar to like a Gandalf figure. He's just so mythical. He's Nordic. He's always hanging out in his shop, sharpening the ice skates, and he's just got this aura and wisdom. So yeah, Hans is a great character. Who's your favorite player in the film? All right, so number one, my favorite player I'm watching at this time is Fulton. Tough outsider, initially misunderstood kid, has all these weird rumors why he doesn't play hockey. Recognizable from a few small roles, like he was in She's All That, had a small part in Castaway, he was in Dumb and Dumber, and he was recently in Jessica Jones and the Luke Cage series, as well as Defenders and Daredevil. Actually, I mean, Daredevil plays one of my favorite characters, Foggy Nelson. Excellent in that, in that show. I love his role as Fulton. I love the sound effects they use for Fulton. I love his growl when he's first introduced. I love that he slap shot pucks into the street, not into the alley. One of my favorite characters of this whole franchise. Fulton is great. I like Goldberg. Full name is Gray Goldberg, number 33, played by Sean Weiss. Goldberg ends up being in a few other films. Um, Once again, you see this connection between Brill and Apatow because he's in heavyweights. He's just really memorable. He's the one that always stuck out of my mind even as I got older. If I thought back on the Mighty Ducks, I'd immediately in my mind go to Goldberg. He probably has some of the best lines in the film, like iconic one-liners. I think they stand the test of time. He's also so memorable because of his Philly gear. Such a simple characterization 
of him as the kid from Philly. But he's always wearing flyers, jerseys, and hats. And also, like, they do a good job of his name's Goldberg, and they build up that he's Jewish. They find out, like, in D2, his family has a Jewish deli, and you see that iconography to build depth to these characters. It's pretty sad, though, because the actor Sean Weiss has run into some serious trouble lately with the law. There's a lot of those Where Are They Now articles that show some pictures of him now compared to back then. He's basically in and out of jail and has a major problem with meth, I guess. But it's one of those things where you grow up and you realize some of these childhood stars had very weird trajectories. Not every story ends up picture perfect. So what are some other actors in this film? As far as characters, another one I liked in the first one that was very funny is Carp. He's one of the funnier ones, kind of the fat kid. He has an anger problem, it seems like, because he's always getting beat up against guys who are much bigger than him. Yeah, I, I love it. He's played by Aaron Schwartz. He was also in Heavyweights, as well as The Adventures of Pete and Pete, another funny show I used to watch on Nickelodeon. But I, I always didn't like that he wasn't in the second one, because I really liked him in the first one. He's one of the funnier characters. Carp is really funny. I liked him a lot. And he always had the funny jean jackets that are cut off on the arms. My favorite character besides Goldberg would definitely have to be Lester Averman. He's the goofball character with the quick mouth and he's played by Matt Doherty. He's with a small role actually. I was surprised at how few lines he actually had in the film, but mm-hmm. he's always so memorable with whatever he says. Like, hey, bada 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 bada, hey, bada 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 bada. Uh, so many like little funny things. He's just very, very unique and idiosyncratic. Um, and he went on the actor, Matt Doherty, to be a pretty prolific and busy TV actor. He has had a parts in ER, Felicity, CSI, Grey's Anatomy, and even TV shows like So I Married an Axe Murderer. There's a few other surprising actors in this film. One who's recently been in the news for a major scandal, and who would that be? So that'd be Jesse Smollett, who played Terry Hall, aka Jesse's younger brother. We know him from Empire, Alien Coven, as you said, that huge doctor, racist, homophobic attack scandal from, was it last year? This cast is ripe with controversy when we look at it that way between him and Goldberg. Yeah, Goldberg is definitely more just straight tragedy, right? And Jesse Smollett was having a great career. He was doing well. He was a very popular character on Empire. And as everyone knows, he manufactured that attack on himself in Chicago, which became a major scandal, probably ruined the rest of his career. It's going to be a hard one to come back from on a PR angle. I was shocked to learn that this was the film where the young Jesse Smollett began his career. And so that covers a lot of the major characters, at least in my memory, but there's another few characters that are pretty memorable as well, right? There's Marguerite Moreau, who plays Connie Moreau. So she's the female on the team, and she's like the hot girl that all the all the players kind of like. She went on to be in Wet Hot American Summer, Paddleton, and Shameless. Anyone else that you want to bring up before we move on? Yeah, it's, uh, there's two other players. They're the two skill players. We're leaving out the skill guys. The guys who are putting the pucks in the net in these movies, man. We'll start off with Charlie Conway, who I used to like a lot growing up. He was probably my favorite character in these movies. Played by Joshua Jackson, who's known from Dawson's Creek fame. He was recently in Netflix's When They See Us and Little Fries Everywhere on Hulu. I believe he's also in Urban Legend. Really good actor in all three of these movies, actually. Yeah, Charlie Charlie was the go-to. He was the kid you wanted to be. The pressure came to him and he, got, he scored that winning goal. I love that we didn't even bring him up till now, but Charlie Charlie Conway is the heart and soul of the Mighty Ducks films. He's the main character on the team. Really the person we care most about, especially in Mighty Ducks 1. The young Joshua Jackson does a really good job emoting and making us really empathize with him off the ice as well as on the ice. And then our other skill player who I used to always want to play like growing up was Adam Banks. 
the cake eater, as they call him. Always like that nickname they give him. He's the one of the ones who could play. Like, he could, he could actually play hockey. Yeah, Adam Banks was a very interesting role, and he's played by Vincent LaRusso. As the cake eater, he just comes across as that sort of rich, slightly spoiled kid who's also likable. One of the funny things about Banks is he was just going to be a kind of nobody player. The initial actor who was going to be Banks was this bully, and one of the producers finally gave him a warning and said, if you do it one more time, he's going to get a boot. And certainly enough, a few days later, the actor that initially played Banks punched one of the other actors or did something out of line. And so the next day, his mother and the actor got plane tickets and were kicked off the set. So now we need to get into this film because there's just so much to talk about. Let's start off with some of these opening scenes, which are very different than the other sports movies because they are set in the world of law. How do you like the character Gordon Bombay as he initially is set up? And how do you like the way this film starts out? absolutely love the way this film starts out from the setup from the credits of him playing that major game on the Hawks to him showing up in the courtroom that balance is I think perfect just to kind of give an example we start off with the scene with the Hawks coach telling him you know you list this shot you're letting the whole team down we get that mentality of win at all costs right away and then when we see him in the courtroom he's an absolute shark lawyer which I, I just love so I feel the movie just does a great job of getting us to that point of where we see why this memory is haunting Emilio S as his character even when he's in that courtroom it's very complex and there's a lot going on in the beginning of this movie i think particularly for a kid's movie and it's conveyed very well for such a young audience the pressure of that moment is so strong from the outset from the music to this kind of hazy look of the camera the close-ups of the kid where the kid looks very nervous the goalie too i love the goalie mask even though it's just a classic looks like a 70s style jason hockey mask it has that aura of like that skull kind of death motif to it so it's very loaded in the beginning and that moves very well into the court scene where you see him as a successful lawyer which I think is very important seeing that he is a good lawyer but he's obviously flawed with the drinking and DUIs so yeah I think it's a very very good beginning moves the exposition of the plot to get us to when we finally get to meet the team all good points the opening sequence is very strong with the flashback of Gordon Bombay as a little youth hockey player himself. And to see that failure, to see his dismay, to see how that later comes to motivate him throughout the film is such an important and strong way to start this film off. Yeah. I love how they transition from that defeat to this depiction of him as an adult who has turned into a pretty nasty person. He's cocky, he's arrogant, he's kind of slimy. He just seems kind of like a prick for lack of a better word. He's in court, he wins his case, but he wins his case at all costs. And I like some of the dialogue in the beginning where they are trying to, I think, paint him as this figure that has lost his sense of humanity because all he cares about is winning, right? 30 and 0 in his cases, which immediately makes a link to the fact that the courtroom is similar to sport, which is pretty funny because in our first episode, we made that link ourselves, in which we said the genre of films that are based on courtroom cases, on big you know, legal cases, kind of fits perfectly into the sports genre, even though there's no actual sport going on. Because the reason the court scene is so strong, I think, is because he tells the judge basically that there's an existing precedent and that existing precedent was that judge's fault. Basically, if he calls out the judge proceeding his case, he's going to use the tactic that was used against that judge in, when he was a lawyer, pretty much. So that's what wins him that argument. And it does a really good job of showing that he's a sharp lawyer, like he's going for that W all the time, but the means in which he's doing it is questionable. So he's a man of questionable ethics early on. So I feel like when Duxworth tells him, you know, score, don't spike, it's that restraint. The idea of like, you want to win, but you don't want to be a 
a showboater, which he clearly is. Because like you point out when he, he says he's 30 and 0, and then his secretary corrects him and says, no, you're 30 and 1. And he gives her like this glaring look. <laughs> it's like, 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 how dare you mention my loss, my one loss. Those scenes in the courtroom and those scenes in the, in the law firm too, because I think the law firm is an extension of the courtroom to some degree, like you point out with those conversations, points out how, to some degree, how traumatic that, that loss was. That missed goal in the beginning, the idea that he let his team down, let his coach down. That's a source of motivation for him to be such a good lawyer. My good lawyer for him means a lawyer that wins. It doesn't matter how he wins. To where even now he's always, as he quotes, going for the W. It really builds the psychology of him and links it from his moment as a child missing that really important penalty shot to him as an adult who cannot stand to lose suddenly. You see the pathology of his personality into this lawyer who cannot bear the idea of ever being inferior or ever losing because he had been coached and taught by such a remorseless figure. That great role of Coach Jack Riley, who's played by Lane Smith. Lane Smith is an actor that I most recognize from his other role in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. I watched that throughout my childhood. And in this film, he is excellent in a very different role than the normal Disney evil coach role. J.O. Sanders played it very smarmy for comedic beats. And Lane Smith has a different type of emotional depth. He has no sensitivity or empathy for the psychology of these young kids. He's a win-at-all-cost figure, and he doesn't play it over the top. He plays it real in a way that you believe that he is a coach. I really respected that about his role. I like the way you phrase it. In this one, he's just a coach. There's no connection to an outside job. There's no connection to a child on the team. He's been coaching his team for apparently more than 20 years, it looks like, if Gordon was like 10 or whatever when he took that shot. So uh, yeah, I like there's a, there's a weird intensity, a tradition of winning, a culture of winning he has. I like that it creates a kind of like he's he's serves as like the specter both over Gordon right over the arena when he's in there and like you say he brings a really stern presence to him that's not supposed to be funny it's supposed to be intimidating and for the most part it is and it creates a great tension for Bombay to have these moments when he has to stand up to that father figure I like that you brought up the word stern. I think that's perfect for him. I also want to go back a second. And in that opening court scene, it's kind of interesting to know that Steve Brill, the writer-director who I talked about just a minute ago, was the other lawyer with Gordon Bombay. What's funny is he's the one questioning the ethics of Gordon Bombay as they walk out of the courtroom. And when he wrote this film, he wrote the role wanting to play Gordon Bombay. It's very clear that he was bummed out pretty harshly that he didn't get this role. And so I find it funny that he ended up becoming this sort of voice of conscience. So after we get the introduction of Gordon Bombay as a lawyer, right, we have the inciting incident in which he moves from being a very successful lawyer to being the coach of the Mighty Ducks. And back to Gordon Bombay, I remember being shocked at how awful this character was before he becomes a kid's coach. And I really like that about him. It is much more adult for a kid's sports movie. And one of the things that's interesting about that is this film was very clearly derived from Bad News Bears. And Steve Brill even says in interviews that he basically wanted to write a Bad News Bears film set in the world of hockey. Peter Berg, his roommate, said that Steve Brill himself kind of exhibited similar qualities to Walter Matthau. And so he could see him as a Walter Matthau-like coach, this sort of deadbeat coach. What 
is weird to me is Emilio Estevez doesn't really feel like that character. I like that. It makes him unique. I believe that he would get a DUI, but it's for a different reason. He's not this sort of bitter, curmudgeonly, wisecracking, alcoholic figure like Walter Matthau kind of is, so much as he's this young quasi-playboy lawyer who just believes he's above the law and above the world. And so we get him being humbled by the law, which is his profession, and being sent out to coach a group of misfits. It makes sense that a man who works for a prominent law firm would have the connections to make some sort of quote-unquote plea arrangement or whatever community service deal. I like the way that the firm is yet compassionate and a nurturing environment in some parts, like in this beginning when they're setting him up for meeting the team and kind of this rehab plan, I guess. And then later it's a place of conflict when we have that scene with Coach O'Reilly, Banks's dad, and Ducksworth. Because Ducksworth is an interesting character in the beginning because he's a moral compass in the beginning and then he's an adversary later on. Basically tells Gordon that we're concerned about his stress level and speak about the firm. They're worried that he doesn't have a social conscience to a certain degree. He's kind of like a very like millennial boss. He cares about, you know, how his firm is represented, what it does to the community, it sounds like. And that's what Gordon's going to later use to, you know, get gear for the Ducks. I always like that. It's kind of, it's not realistic, yet it is realistic. Because it's going to come again where they're going to get money for sponsorship through the firm, which would make sense through this plot. So I always like that about this. Also, we see Gordon Bombay in the in the courtroom as a successful lawyer. And then the next scene, we see him in the courtroom being sentenced. Very quickly, we get two courtroom scenes. One where he's, for lack of a better phrase, on top of the world. And the other one where he's being punished. And the great use of contrast in which he shows up to the first practice. He doesn't show up just in any normal vehicle, right? He shows up in a limousine. Not only that, despite his limousine driver's consternation, he demands that the driver actually go onto the ice with the limousine. He gets out in his really fancy winter clothing, right? A long, nice jacket. And he's this spiffy, rich, smug lawyer figure coming face to face with the ragtag group of misfits that he's going to have to coach and lead and become a sort of father figure. I like this opening moment and I kind of neglected to make that point out in the my last analysis of the firm scenes, but the firm scene also does a good job of establishing that he hates hockey now. All right, there's a point where his secretary mentions she got tickets to a hockey game. He's like, hockey, I hate hockey. So when he sees the kids and we get those great lines where he says, I hate kids, they're barely human. The first thing he tells him is, I hate hockey and I don't like kids. And I think Abram's like, was this supposed to be a pep talk? And I really like those connections of why he hates hockey. We know why he hates hockey from what we've seen in the credits. That kind of culminates very well in that first introduction scene. He looks, obviously, he's upper class, he's lower class, lower socioeconomic status for these kids. But it does a good job of creating that kind of like Western standoff I got from that scene where he's standing on one side of the ice, the kids are on the other, it's quiet. It's like, who's going to move first? I really like that tension in the beginning. Yeah, it's kind of parodying that Western standoff, but it's still very funny when they come together. And then also Bombay's arrival gives us great insight to the kids themselves with Aberman making corks, these funny little one-liners. Um, I love when he asks the kids, like, what happened to your old coach? And like the kid gives the impersonation of the coach telling him, oh, you little bastards, learn how to play. And then he has like a heart attack. It's, it's very fun, but also tense. It has that nice shot of the city in the background with the downtown is framed very nicely in the background of the, of the pond. Then there's the great moment in which all the kids pile into the limousine, right? I love that. As I watched it as a kid, I always thought it was like the really fun part. It's just funny. They have the Goldberg part, you know, Goldberg parts, and they all go Goldberg. But this time, it's kind of a cool visual way of showing the demographic of kids who would really crave attention. And that scene comes right after he just leaves and gets back into the limo so they can just practice on their own. And they all immediately come back kind of like, hey, we're still here. And I really like that. It does a good job of establishing him as a parental figure right away. Even though he just gave that speech about how he hates kids and hates hockey, they still come right right at him, which I thought was very interesting as I watched it this time. That's a very good point. I didn't think 
of that either. You know, he's standoffish. He clearly doesn't care about them, but they're going to go demand his attention. They're going to go win him over as well. They can feel that he's kind of cold-hearted and they see that as an opportunity to warm him up. It's also funny too, the whole Goldberg farting. Uh, They play that in the second film as well. And then it turns out to be the new enforcer who actually farts in the scene in, in D2. There's also just the funny moment where they're blowing raspberries on the limousine window. It sets up the nice introduction to Charlie's mom. And she shows up chastising Gordon Bombay, as she should, for having a team of hockey players in a limousine on ice. Obviously not the best way to make an impression on one of the parents for your new team. But obviously he also doesn't care. I love the way it ends as well. So they ask him at the very end, will you be at the game tomorrow? And he tells them by the order of the state of Minnesota, yeah. Clearly, he's the reluctant coach, bitter about being served this role. He's going to go through the motions. And we all know that slowly they're going to chink the armor away and reveal the empathy and compassion and goodness and youth hockey personality that has been submerged for so long. So it's this redemptive story, clearly, from the get-go. Very much like a subtle Scrooge archetype who's going to slowly warm up. All right, so now let's look at some scenes on the ice. They very quickly get into the first game with the Hawks. Like the other films in this group, or at least like the Big Green, where they play the Knights in the first game and the final game, we get the Hawks in our first game, and then we're going to get them in our last game as well. And before the game even starts, there's that great scene between Gordon Bombay and the coach of the Hawks, right? Where the coach of the Hawks realizes that it is Gordon Bombay, and we get the introduction to Banks as this replica of Gordon Bombay as a young kid that has even more potential. And I think that plays really well later. Uh, What did you think about this scene where Coach Riley immediately recognizes Gordon Bombay? Watching it this time, I I love Emilio Estevez's performance in this. The way he comes across so meager and like weak compared to Riley, he still seems like he's views him from that childlike perspective, still looking up to him. It's not necessarily shot that way, like with high angles or anything like that, but you get that sense of like power position. I really like that in the beginning. Obviously, it's got to come down to the first game. It's got to be the Hawks. It's got to it's got to be the Hawks, otherwise this wouldn't work. Uh, going back to what we were talking about with Big Green, I love the tension it sets up when you see the team and we see the team's eliteness. There's something preceding when you see that visual that really carries over to the power of the Hawks. And it comes from that conversation, that history of winning, the line when, he's, when he points out the banner of the year, he missed the shot where they came in second place, where he says, I wish they would take that one down, don't you? That kind of dig at him. Just a really good job of setting up not just tension, we keep saying that, but that negative relationship he has with what could have been a father-like figure. That is such a low blow, too, when he points out the banner. It's the one banner where they don't win the championship. You could tell it kills Gordon Bombay in that moment. The music in that scene is so good because it ties us back to the tension of the credit scene very well. It has that spacey kind of air to it. I love the music in this movie. I think it's worth noting the score is just very moving. 100%. The music in this film is incredible almost. It's one of the better scores of Disney films, period. There's a lot of serious like sounding tones that are used in this in this scene in the ice. Whatever sound effects are used, it's very, it comes out very somber and very serious at times. I really like that. I do too. And I like the fact that this film has that kind of deep emotional resonance when the cast and crew talked about it recently in an oral history they talked about the three films and this one really came up again and again as a film that really had this emotional depth the other ones are good for other reasons specifically d2 is the biggest of the three but the first one really has a heart at its center and the score i think is what propels that emotional pull i, I like the fact that you brought up he seems sort of intimidated 
because of the way he was treated as a kid and because of the way that missing that penalty shot demoralized him and disheartened him to such a degree he almost never got over it. And Emilio Estevez is perfectly cast in the sense that he looks like an overgrown boy. He's got that boyish face. Especially when you see in D2, there's no way that fool is playing against those giant pros. No way. Um, and one of the things I was cracking up about every time I watched him on skates, clearly it was a stunt double. And I read that he had never skated before this film. So he has no skills on ice skates. And it shows. Uh, the first game, what other things stuck out to you? And one of the first things that stands out to me is the shots, the way hockey is shot. This is obviously our first game. Uh, the speed of this movie, it's much slower than the other two. These later films will kind of animate the sounds more, but for the most part, the first game, and D2 actually, D2 had good sound effects too. It sounds like a hockey rink. The sound of the echo, the sound of the puck, the sticks on the ice, the clanking, uh, even the crowds in the background, it feels authentic in that in that regard. At least from the perspective of like someone who like, played hockey back in the day, I, I really did like that. Yeah, so last week we had I've talked about the Big Green's first game, the one with the matchup against the Knights. We were talking about how that was a parody of this first game against the Hawks. And one of the striking differences between this is how much more official the Hawks come off because of that lack of humor. We we're talking about how good Jay's performance was because it's very funny. And this, it comes off much more militaristic and intentionally militaristic with the heavy drills, the chants. I love when the three Hawks skate by and come up and say, hi, girls. There's something real to that. Anyone's like played youth sports, there's always some little prick on the a good team wants to come by and trip the shitty team so i really like that scene and i just like the introduction to the hawks it stands up yeah i also like the first game because you see that gordon bombay really doesn't care about coaching them but the fact that they get embarrassed suddenly flips his entire approach to the team right he doesn't show the right compassion to the kids and their state of being embarrassed it's all ego but at least now he cares right it, it sets it up so that he's now motivated to coach them but the players are kind of jaded. They know they're losers. They know they keep getting run over by teams like the Hawks. They don't like being suddenly lectured by this new figure who doesn't really understand what it feels like to be them, which is a common trope in these films. And I really like the way they set up that dynamic with this game against the Hawks. It really is a natural way for him to be inspired and have that shift in which he could care less about doing this. He's just going to put in the hours until he can get back into his law firm and clear his record. And now very quick his ego has been injured enough that he cares. Also, it's a really cool comment you said about the sound on the ice. I was noticing the way it was filmed. I had read a little bit about the filming of the hockey sequences, and it's pretty interesting. They use all sorts of novel technology, like a gyro cam, which is used in the uh, NFL, to get a more three-dimensional feel. They also use a lot of cranes, which is pretty normal. And they had flying cameras, rail cameras, all sorts of neat camera work that really puts you into the action and gave it a immersive feeling. Hockey is such a great sport to film. It's fast, it's physical, it's set to a backdrop of all white, so it really mm -hmm. allows colors to pop at you. All that really shows in comparison to something like the Big Green or even Angels in the Outfield. These sports scenes in this film are so much more exciting. And they accentuate that by having really interesting players. So after this game, right, we're going to get into the development of these unique quirks. This film not only has great hockey scenes in the traditional sense, but these really, really creative eccentricities that are 
tethered to certain players and their unique skills. And that's another exciting thing that doesn't come out in this game so much because this game is just to show that they're the bottom of the league and completely in disarray as a team. And then carrying on, the first game also does a great job of just giving us the funny aspects of these characters, like letting us see the humor they're going to be delivering in this movie. I really like that it's set to that kind of like jazz big band sound for the blowout game where they're getting beat like 10-0. And we get these great scenes with like Goldberg where he's getting scored on so much, he just throws his pads down, you know, hands the other team an empty net, tell him, no, take it, just take the goal, take the goal. Cuts to the bench and you see, I think it's Connie, he's like, I'm so embarrassed. We need a new goalie. Just really good lines like that where you can really understand like how dismayed and how used to losing this team is. They know they suck and they're kind of fine with that. They're, they are there just to have fun and play hockey. When they get in the game, you get to see that they're just used to getting just utterly embarrassed. I like the fact that you said that they're kind of okay with it because they kind of are. When Gordon Bombay yells at them and says, you guys stink. I thought we came here to play hockey. Averman responds, I knew we forgot something. And they all kind of chuckle. That's a realistic sort of defense mechanism that you believe. You believe that they're used to losing and they're kind of content with it because they're friends and it's just not fun to pine too much or think or reflect too much about how much of a loser you are. So they've kind of developed this humorous defense mechanism in which they're kind of accepting of it. Gordon Bombay is, as the game goes along, more and more merciless in his critiques of them as well. At one point, he yells, nice fan, Charlie. Keep swinging. You might catch a cold. He has all these really witty low blows that he keeps muttering to the players. That's also a great depiction of his character and the way that he is so narcissistic, that he is willing to belittle his own players because he feels his own ego threatened by the fact that he's being defeated by this coach who has traumatized him as a kid. And so that dynamic really works because you really don't like Bombay for that reason. But because you have that flashback at the beginning of the film, you still sympathize with him because you realize how he has been traumatized himself. The last thing I like about the first game is that there are a lot of big green parallels uh, between the Knights and the Hawks. They both have all black jerseys. They both have a uh, merciless mentality. I love the chant of the Hawks in which the coach yells, it's not worth winning and then pauses and then everyone yells, if you can't win big. I just think that's a hilarious, very J.O. Sanders-esque quote that does work perfectly for the Hawks in a different way as well. They still don't have that knight-like persona in which they're more realistically mean. And finally, like most of the Disney films, when the duck first starts, they all have really crappy equipment. I actually like this with the equipment because it's one of those things where you're like, oh, no recreational league would ever let kids not have you know, the full equipment to play hockey, especially hockey. There's so much insurance involved with youth hockey. But it, it's another one of those threads that's later picked up, as you point on, it ties to their confidence, which is like one of the points that Gordon Bombay makes when he's going to get the sponsorship to get him good gear. I really like that in the beginning. It makes them look, like you said, believable that they accept that they're losers. And it shows that socioeconomic tie into it. They can't afford the gear. They're not taken seriously compared to the Hawks, that visual distinction between them with like this motley crew of random padding, some from other sports. Well, I think Carp's wearing like a football helmet, if I remember right. From one of the games, someone's got like a skateboarding helmet on. Charlie has a plastic stick, which I always thought was funny. Have you ever seen a plastic stick on the ice? Like, I've never seen that. It's like a street hockey stick. So I really like that. It really aids the scene when they get that shopping spree at Han's shop, which is one of my favorite scenes. So we kind of believe that you got to look the part thing. It brings a little truer in this one. So after this first game, things don't get better 
very quickly, actually. In fact, for the, at least the next game, the morale on the team actually gets worse. We quickly see Gordon Bombay using his legal tactics on the ice. What I mean by that is he's trying to teach the players how to tweak the system, how to circumvent the rules, or how to exploit the rules for their advantage. Instead of teaching them skills and self-confidence, he teaches them how to take falls. We see Goldberg being taught how to take a fall. We see Gordon Bombay talking to Charlie about how to take a fall. When he tells them to grab their eye like it is cut and hit the ice, you can tell that they're not on board. This really sets up a very crucial conflict in the film in which these kids are going to not only teach him so many other lessons about caring and about the power of teamwork and arrogance and about belief, but they're also going to teach him just a simple ethical question that cheating a system is ultimately only cheating yourself. And it's, you know, it's, it's a common aphorism, but it's an important one that hits strongly and potently in this film. I like the way you put that idea that this points out he's cheating, cheating's bad. This comes up later in this film again with the issue of Banks's eligibility. But as I'm thinking about this now, so many of these eventually later movies are going to depend on these outlandish strategies to get goals that might be cheating. In D2, we get like a goalie switch change, which I think is a complete cheat. That's an interesting way of looking at this film, that ethical dilemma of, again, going back to that win at all costs, but also win lazily too. I actually will strongly disagree with you on that point though the the d2 scene are you're talking about when fulton is in goal instead of or is it tyler's in goal he does a knuckle puck like it's they take, they take like a five minute timeout to switch goalies yeah so in d2 right tyler <laughs> is in goal and, and it allows him to get the knuckle puck and that yeah. to me is a brilliant trick play i admire that that reminds me of like the statue of liberty play in, in college play. football in this one they have a statue of liberty play too with bolton right with either a little fake it's not a cheap play but it's a, it's a very good gimmicky play this movie kind of does a good job of bending some of those rules to get those players. There's a lot of interference in these games. Yeah, there's a lot of trickery and chicanery, but I like the cleverness that's still, to me, aligned with the spirit of the game because it's in the flow of the game and it's in a way that maximizes or optimizes talent to a degree, whereas simply taking a dive or pretending to be injured goes against the spirit of the game. And I feel that there's a difference between trying to get a penalty in a cheap way as opposed to, in the flow of a game, having a deceptive maneuver that shows that you are not only physically superior, but also intellectually superior. In this film, I think that the scene with Charlie is probably the most profound moment in which he's yelling on the bench. I mean, Gordon Bombay, when I say he, he's basically yelling at him to cheat. Cover your eye, cover your eye, hit the ice, hit the ice but Charlie will not do it. And you see that he is above stooping to such a lowly, petty tactic. It's a powerful moment in which, as a kid, he shows that he will stand up to his coach because he has a higher moral law than his coach. Very quickly, Charlie, to me, becomes an adult-like character. And beyond that, you get a, even a backlash from the parent. The father of Jesse Smollett's character, he shows up after the game and he yells at Coach Bombay, telling him that he doesn't want to waste his overtime pay to see his kids taking falls. And that's a valid point. Clearly didn't have a problem with seeing his kids losing, but when he's paying to see his kid learn how to cheat is a completely different thing. And it leads into the next scene with Hans very well, the idea of losing yourself. 
he was a good hockey player and we see that early on he didn't need to cheat and the idea that he would cheat i always find very poignant in the next scene when han's going to pass down you know this great wisdom to him which is essentially to remember that hockey is about having fun that's all you'll remember when you're older is whether or not you had fun and clearly bombay does not remember having fun playing hockey no i love that you transitioned or segued perfectly into hans because this is where hans is needed this is where his role fits perfectly into the film right he yeah. is the voice of reason and the moral compass for Gordon Bombay. He is the benevolent and noble and dignified moral compass that he lacked in, in the Hawks. I also like the setup of that entire scene in the hockey shop. The way they make this hockey shop kind of this like sacred space, this window to the past, window to the present. It has the history of hockey for that area on the walls. And it has the authentic quality of a hockey shop at that time, something that's pretty much lost now. Whereas this place that's not necessarily about buying things, it's a place of conversing with someone about hockey and not just hockey the sport, but hockey as a lifestyle and a value system. And I think this is emanated throughout all three movies very well. This the sacred space of of the shop as a as you point out, a place of passing down knowledge, wisdom, self-reflection really. I love the setting of the hockey shop. It is so mythological and enchanting. It ties in the whole Scandinavian and Nordic mythology that is perfectly relevant to Minnesota. I love that this film is set in Minnesota and has such a strong sense of place. It's not just kind of a throwaway setting, but you really get that they're taking in some of the elements of Minnesota, which has a very large Scandinavian population. But also Hans's workshop reminded me of Gestapo in Pinocchio. He's kind of tinkering away in the middle of the night and he doesn't even turn around, but he knows that Gordon Bombay has showed up. So he sort of has this sixth sense. He is in many ways very otherworldly. I love that about his character because it takes the film from the level of reality to the level of the mythological, the metaphorical in a way that works so perfectly. The fact that he does something that is linked to the world of hockey, but also very independent, right? It's a very creative and innovative role to create when you're making this film, because it's hard to get this old mythological sage-like figure to have a place in this plot without seeming like this weirdo creep who is just kind of lingering in the corners. It's, I, I think it's a really interesting role. All right, let's look at some of the stuff that happens, not so much having to do with hockey, just off the ice shenanigans. What was your favorite moment off the ice? Oh, there are so many moments off the ice that I liked. I think my favorite was when they're in the back alley and they find the pile of Sports Illustrated magazines. That ties really well into our own childhood where we always had those hidden stashes that our parents had. So that took me back immediately to childhood. I love where the Hawks come in and steal the magazine and call them Wuss Breath, this very, very dated, funny insult. And then suddenly Fulton appears. He's grunting. He's this total, like, vagrant ruffian figure. Yeah, it's very... Um... Um, authentic to the pranks kids would play like the dog shit in the purse prank is very funny for one it seems like something we would do like try to do that type of trickery but then when they get caught and the chase is something I know you and I can completely relate to when you get caught doing prank you're not supposed to but here the, the speed up of the characters the animation it's very funny it's uh, how's the opposite reaction that I have with Big Green when they try to speed it up the sound effects like when the guy chases him falls and hits his nuts he squeaks it, it still landed for me it was very funny yeah I love also how they feed the chili to the dog first to get yeah. it to defecate. I forgot they even do the hockey announcement. You know, he's kind of like breaking down the dog pooping like a hockey announcer break down a shot. It's still like this little quality that I thought was really nice and funny. It's so well thought out and well planned and executed. And then the response when they just run when the guy sees them and sees that they did the prank uh, it rang true 
What other scenes did you like off the ice? The fight at the school when they all get into a giant fight. Again, it's another one where it has funny trash talking lines, another good your mama joke and carp. And it culminates very well as another team building through violence. That is such a weird way in which they build camaraderie through violence in a lot of these movies. It's almost like this fight is cathartic. You know when they fight that at the end, it's going to be this catharsis in which they're going to come together. It's just funny. Them, the quacking at the principal. I mean, it's one of those funny, iconic movies from the movie that actually stood the test of time, I thought, watching it again. And that film also pays off when Coach Bombay shows up at the school and they're all writing standards on the board. And the standards are, I will not quack at the principal. I will not quack at the principal. I will not quack at the principal. I really love that moment. So we talked about off the ice. Now let's move to back on the ice, but not to real games. I want to focus on practices. Practices in this film are very inventive. There is a lot of really interesting techniques and gimmicks that the creators of this film use to show that they are making progress and coming together. What are some of your favorite moments in the practice scene? Goldberg's bar mitzvah, I think is my favorite one. That's when they tie him to the net and just unload a bunch of pucks on him to overcome his essentially his fear of getting shot at. Like We didn't really talk about that, but in the first game, Goldberg's a goalie, but he's scared of the puck. Like We have a scene where Charlie's in the beginning warming him up and he hits him, he falls over and he mentions you can't be scared of the puck. It's just a funny scene. I love the idea. You know, he says, Goldberg, you know, you're going to be a man. Think of it as your bar mitzvah. No, coach, I think it's more like a circumcision. You got the ceremonies mixed up. It's a funny line. It gives, again, that kind of building into Goldberg a little bit, that giving him a type of ethnicity and religious background through these lines. I love the setup with the gun cocking sound effects, the shootout, just the whole arrangement around that scene, the array of puck sounds hitting him all at once, and then him laughing through it eventually. It's funny. It's fun. Like we'll talk about a lot of these practice scenes. They're, they're quirky, but they do teach a fundamental principle of, of playing hockey. And this one is the fundamental principle of you can't be scared of the puck. You always have to have your eye on the puck. I really like that they force him to overcome his fear with the comedy of tying him to the net. And then it's funny when they leave him behind. I love the team skating away. He talks about they're going to get pizza. Again, very youth hockey. And they leave the goalie there and he tells him, don't make me come after you, coach. Yeah, that seems really great. I love when they leave him there hanging and he has to skate off with the net still tied to him. And I also really like the fact that they have the brother-sister's figure skating duo join the team. I think that's really imaginative. It reminds me of Million Dollar Arm, one of the Disney films in the 2000s where the baseball agent goes to India to get a cricket star and bring him into the Major League Baseball scene, right? It's this very smart sports narrative or trope in which you realize that something that's peripheral to a sport might actually breed a really raw talent that you can then foster and cultivate as a sudden star. Yeah, I like that they use the egg. It's not a practical drill. Like what, what coach is going to go buy 30 dozen eggs to have kids break them? But it does give great visual humor when it gets the, the egg yolk on his obviously like expensive cardigan sweater or whatever. Again, that hockey fundamental idea that you you sail a pass and you accept it. I, I, did, I did like that scene as well. I think it finds a good balance of like conveying some sort of purpose to the practice. Like they are practicing, but giving us something funny to laugh at as well. And that also goes into like how we get to the mall scene where they're skating in the Mall of America. It's literally them teaching Fulton how to skate. And it's kind of funny, you got Gordon Bombay going there with them as they run on these, you know, bothering all these people just trying to shop. But it's a good way of, again, even that type of humor has a type of exigence to it where Bombay is still teaching this kid, you know, how to skate. 
The Mall of America scene reminded me a lot of the scene that we talked about last week in the Big Green, where they are off-roading with Deputy Doug. But the difference was this one worked entirely on so many levels. Once again, it created a deeper sense of place and what it's like to live in Minneapolis. Uh, Later, we're going to get even some discussion about how the city is set up in districts, which teaches us a little bit about the socioeconomic discrepancies in the population. We get the Mall of America, we get the Scandinavian detail. I just love when a screenplay and a story tackles multiple levels of the setting and really builds a culture that feels honest and real. And so as we get these practice scenes, we also get a few quick games and we start to see the turnaround. We get Gordon Bombay going to his law firm and talking Mr. Ducksworth into sponsoring the team and getting them jerseys. He tells Mr. Ducksworth, I'm learning a lot about fair play, teamwork, and all that junk. So you can see how immune he is to these concepts still, but that he's slowly warming up to them. But he also notes, fair play doesn't come cheap. They don't have equipment. Old copies of the Inquirer tapes instead of pads. So I thought that maybe the firm could help them out. Think of the goodwill. We'll name the team after the firm. So it shows how clever he is. He's basically appealing to the marketing strategies and selfish interests of Mr. Ducksworth. I like how they get the jerseys. They're official now, pretty much. They got the corporate logos. They got the Easton pads, the CCM sticks. That leads us into the unveiling of the Ducks jersey. I think it's a very strong moment in the movie. I like the way he sells the idea of the team to him. He sells the team as a concept. It's something you have to get behind, which I think is a very sports motif and a sports, you know, sports thing to do. There's a lot of symbolic gestures, I think, in this scene too for the kids and their characters based on who says what. We have the young kid, Peter, kind of immediately isn't on board. We see that none of the kids want to step up to take the first jersey, right? They're all kind of looking around who will do it. Going back to how he sells the team he says quote i'll have you know that the duck is one of the most noble agile animals in the animal kingdom and then one of the kids says but they're wimpy and they don't have teeth to which he responds neither do hockey players which is a great funny line giving that good character to that speech then he gets to the main point of his speech you ever see ducks fly they stick together if you mess with one duck you have to mess with the whole flock ducks never say die then he unveils the jersey he says i'm a duck i'm proud to be a duck who wants to join me it's a great scene because it doesn't immediately lead to the team stepping behind him they have to wait till fulton steps up who's the new outsider that they just acquired and i really like the idea that they have fulton take the first jersey and not charlie who's our who's our focal point our main character and it's that kind of again feeling that dedication of fulton being the outsider who's been plucked from the streets by gordon for a higher purpose and i really like that it shows fulton buying into that philosophy again going back to the idea that you have to buy into this philosophy to be a winning team i like that the game that they play right after they get the jerseys is against the cardinals and it's their first win before the game they are still at it with their worky practice drills this time they are throwing footballs back and forth in the center of the ice and there's a funny moment where one of the players says what a weird ass team such a real comment and pretty funny that there's this tiny little curse word this game against the cardinals smoothly transitions to the positive uprise right that crescendo in which things start to get good for the ducks however it doesn't stay positive for that long and that's one of the weird things about this film i think in particular is that so much of this film is them losing and they start to get on a winning streak right we see like they always do in disney films that they're on the cover of a magazine suddenly america's number one hockey publication i don't know really why any peewee hockey team gets cover of a magazine for suddenly doing okay in their youth league but it's something that we're just supposed to believe for uh humorous sake i actually paused the shot (laughs) and really blew it up on my computer screen and read some of the article it was about a 15 year old california resident who is hot on the ice and he plays for the thousand 
Oaks Hockey Club. So it didn't even have to do with any team in Minneapolis. It works really fine in the age of when you went to the theater to watch movies because no one's ever going to notice that in the theaters. And usually people don't pause on VHS as much. But in the digital world, um, I'm sure a few other people haven't noticed these funny details. So yeah, we get this uprise of the ducks and they start to come together. You mentioned the scene at the school where they all get in that fight. They all start yelling quack, 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 which is a really strong bonding scene. But very quickly, we get yet another setback in which two of the players over here, Gordon Bombay, talking. And this becomes very quickly another dramatic incident that basically fractures the team. It has to do with a sarcastic quote, but the two players misinterpret it and it really hurts their overall collective morale. What did you think about how quickly it shifts from sort of an upswing back down to conflict? I think it's a bit jarring and it's kind of one of the weaker parts of this movie. As you pointed out, we have that moment where they come together, that sarcasm is going to lead to that conflict, then we're going to get another conflict with Gordon Bombay and Ducksworth, and then we're going to get the scene with the classroom. So for me, it was very up and down. Then we have it in between that, I believe we have a scene between Gordon and Charlie talking about how Gordon's going to give away the team to Jesse's dad. And this is before Ducksworth's scene where he has this big moment where he stands up and basically claims ownership of the team. Very mixed match right there. It's a bit jarring. I don't think it really lines up necessarily when I rewatch this movie, but on their own are fairly strong though when we break them down. Yeah, they're very strong individually. It's just kind of a downer that we get so little positivity before it gets back into conflict again. At the same time, that makes it a more complex film in some degrees. Uh, and you bring up the point that we have the conflict between Gordon Bombay and Mr. Ducksworth. And that comes uh, with the narrative of Adam Banks. So the first game, we quickly mentioned Banks, who's so aptly named, right? He's the cake eater. He's the rich kid, right? And back to Gordon Bombay optimizing his legal expertise, he realizes that Banks actually lives in the district that supposedly belongs to the Ducks. Apparently, this league is separated by district. Where you live is what team you end up on. And they redrew the lines recently, and Gordon Bombay finds out that Adam Banks is actually supposed to be on the Ducks, and he's the star of the Hawks. It's a really weird narrative for me. I have a lot of problems with it morally, given that it is youth hockey, and given that it seems like a cheap shot to go and steal the head player of your opponent to then beat the opponent. I would have personally rather seen the Ducks on their own terms beat the Hawks with Adam Banks. At the same time, I really like the character Adam Banks. Uh, what did you think about this very tricky plot development? I'm with you. I would have initially always thought that was like a low blow, and it is a low blow. It's him using you know that unethical, great reading of the law to you know restore order to his team. One of the things I liked about this when Banks joins the team is we really get another connection to the character Jesse and their animosity. And the way that's explored is, I think, very authentic. Jesse's a hothead. He doesn't like the new kid. The new kid scores. He still doesn't like the new kid. It takes the new kid getting almost killed in the last game for him to finally, you know, friendly be like, we'll get this one for you. And I really like that idea that he had to earn the respect of the team, particularly Jesse, the antagonistic one, to become, you know, one of them. It's very real amongst, you know, kids who are territorial and jealous fleshes that out very well. The youth hockey connection. I find it another strong connection to the Gordon Bombay conflict with uh, Ducksworth. Because it essentially comes down to Ducksworth just choosing Banks, his father, who I believe is a board member, right? Which is an interesting dynamic. 
because up until this point, Ducksworth is a very, to me, likable character. He gave Bombay this great opportunity to not take the devastating consequences of a DUI. He mitigated that very well. He sponsored the team, even though Bombay, you know, he serves it up as an angle of PR, but, you know, he still does this charitable act of sponsoring the team, then makes his complete 180 when it comes down to the line of someone on the board said something, which I think is kind of revealing too. It speaks to the sheen of Ducksworth. Despite the public persona of him being a good man and what we've seen so far, it still comes down to the bottom line and he'll he'll take the side of his board member over the employee. So yeah, I think it's, it's pretty complex actually when we do get Banks in here. He's an interesting factor that helps bring that final game to fruition and make it as moving as it is because he does have a very big part in that game. He does have a big part in that game. Ultimately, he really smoothly transitions into the team and he plays that character that is somewhat unlikable but innocent. Through no fault of his own that he's even on the team, like you point out, like he is very innocent. The great line for him is when he comes to the team, everyone's mean to him. And but he tells coach, you know, I just want to play hockey. And he lives up to that. He learns a respect through his play. And he has some of the better shots of him playing hockey. They do a good job of making him look like at that time who had been like Yammer Yager, making him with the one arm wraparound plays. He could deke, you know. I really like that with the way they made him stand out his hockey play amongst the other ducks, even when he's on their team. Also, I like the fact that there is this dynamic in which the better players in a league are extremely envied and disliked just because they're so good. And you get that. See that the Ducks players are not going to quickly get on board with the fact that he's on the team. I love Averman at this point when he says, the Jess man, this and the new guy, the Jester. I also like the fact that you can see the dark side of this screenplay once again. I think this is a really, really strong screenplay. You have a, that quote where Gordon Bombay goes up to his old coach and tells him, Law's a bitch when it works against you, isn't it, Jack? Which is pretty harsh statement. Definitely not a normal quote from a kid's movie. You get how dirty they're playing back and forth, right? This is a film about dirty politics, about playing the advantages that you can find. The thing that I thought was so weird was there was so much development for Gordon Bombay to realize that, you know, he even says when he asked for the jersey, he's learning about fair play, teamwork, and all that junk. Mm-hmm. And then quickly, he goes into this whole strategy in which it seems very iffy to me. I get the fact that it's within the realm of law or within the mm-hmm. jurisdiction of right and wrong that he can claim Adam Banks, but it just feels... Cool, because either way you look at it, he's taking the kid away from his teammates, which is what he's teaching these other kids is the value of cohesive unit, which Adam Banks already belongs to. Even though the Hawks are a villain, like he, he is plucking them from that. So I'm with you. It's, it is a kind of nefarious plan. It really does go against the grain of what, as you point out, he has been checking off on his journey of rediscovery. Okay, I'm glad I'm not alone because it conflicted for me. All I felt was pity for Adam Banks and slight indignance or anger. This is not what the film really wanted for us to feel. it brings up the bad parenting. The intense parents that's, you know, synonymous with sports because Adam Banks' dad is doesn't really care about Banks liking his hawk friends, right? He hangs out with them. You see the scenes and they're picking on the ducks. He's one of those hawks. You know, those are his buddies. I don't think his dad cares about that. He just wants his kid to be on a winning team, right? And that, that plays out, I think, in D2. We, we get that next story when Banks is injured. And one of the reasons he wants to stay, and not just because the scouts are there, because he wants to make his dad proud. And we'll see it in this movie when Banks gets hurt because the father is still just rooting for Banks to win. And we see Banks go down and his father isn't scared until he realizes his kid's not moving. He's just glad he scored a goal. The last subplot I want to talk about in this second act that kind of moves into the third act is between Coach Bombay, Charlie, and Charlie's mom. This is a 
important part of this story because this film is to me a film about father figures or at least male role models. It's about the relationship between Bombay and his coach Jack Riley and it's really well done to me how we get the dynamic in which Charlie really really craves to have this father figure. He's trying to set his mom up with the coach as the film goes along. You can see though the resistance of the mother because she doesn't want to let him down by being rejected right. She keeps trying to bring men into their world but they keep rejecting her once they learn about Charlie. We get the real growth of Gordon Bombay through his ability to take on that role. Go forth and show up to have the dinner with them and then go on the date where they go out. They even have a kiss. One of the funny behind the scenes facts I read was that it was so cold while shooting that they literally had a Christmas story moment where their lips got stuck when they kissed for that scene and they had to bring some hot water to separate them and this film was shot in minneapolis and it was absolutely freezing which i think actually adds to the film right because in a hockey film you want that cold weather so before we get to the last game they have one big outing that's really fun not only for narrative reasons just also for historical reasons bringing us to this era of the NHL. And we both grew up loving the NHL. And so they go on a field trip to a Minnesota North Stars game. Tell me, did you really enjoy this as much as I did? I do. This is still one of my favorite scenes. I'm still jealous that they get to skate in this private giant arena. Can they get to meet Mike Madonna? I'm still still jealous of that to this day. But yeah, I love this scene. It's very fun. It's, it's, it's just a good time. And I like the just the depiction of ice skating is very spot on. Yeah, I also loved even the small things like looking at the uh, plexiglass and underneath it the advertisements on the board. What'd you notice? I didn't, actually didn't check that out. Like, what, what advertisers do you see that aren't around anymore? Well, there was Upper Decker and there was Kmart, which I think Kmart is technically still around. Yeah, Kmart's still around. Oh, no, I don't know because Sears went out. Well, I think there's a few Kmart still lingering, but mm. they definitely wouldn't advertise at a hockey rink anymore just because they don't have advertising money to do so. There was Winston, there was Coca-Cola, and there was Budweiser, but even the Cola and Budweiser ads were of a very old aesthetic. I thought it was weird at first. I was like, why did they have a Budweiser ad in a kid's film? And I was like, oh, it's actually the the ring. It was kind of a funny little moment in which you get, you know, a Disney film with a Budweiser ad in it. It's also like legitimate hockey team moment. We played roller hockey, but one of the team outings was always ice skating or going to a game. And I really like that way it's shown there, like the joy they have and eating food. And then these little shots of, you see the rival Hawks players there. They're obviously rich kids. They have their own seats and stuff. And then you see them like staring at banks i think there's like a gunshot sound and then you see a shot of jesse you know staring down banks so you still get that character development even in these clearly expositional shots it just goes to show how much depth there is to this screenplay like you said exactly the other thing i liked about this outing is the costume design i just absolutely love the clothes they're wearing it's so early 90s urban chic kind of perfect for like a glossy hip-hop video the plaid hat the jean jackets with the cutoff arms one person has a sheriff badge on their flannel shirt the bandanas the phillies jersey the leather hat the leather jackets the african prints even the san jose shark shirt that i think averman wears across the board the wardrobe is just excellent in this film 
Another thing I love about the game that they attend is that it is the Minnesota North Stars versus the Hartford Whalers. Within just a few years, neither of those franchises exist anymore. The Hartford Whalers become the Carolina Hurricanes and the Minnesota North Stars become the Dallas Stars. So it's this relic. It's this fun historical time warp in which we get two teams that very soon after no longer even exist. That'll take us now to the final game. So one of the things I loved about the final game, which I didn't even pick on, maybe it was on early in the film, is we have the limo driver from that beginning scene, and he's in a few other scenes throughout the movie as the assistant coach now. I thought this was a very Adam Sandler-esque motif, but it reminded me of like a Rob Schneider character in which he had this minor role that somehow becomes included by the end of the film. I really love the sentiment behind this. It's a small thing, but it really makes the everyman feel welcome, like they're a bigger part of the narrative, like they have weight and importance. He's like a kind of a servant, right? He's a servile professional who caters to Gordon Bombay throughout the movie. Yet there's this semi-egalitarian, it's not quite egalitarian, but there's this leveling of class and status. It's so subtle, but to me, it kind of always slightly warms my heart. And that definitely reminds me of the whole ethos of the Adam Sandler world in which he also keeps all his character actors with him. He never really leaves anyone behind. They always get a role. So that's a really small tangent, but it's something that was one of my favorite parts of the film. So this final game, once again, it's against the Hawks. Now Banks is on the Ducks. That's a major drama. The Ducks had to barely squeak in to the playoffs. They had to survive the plague because the Panthers dropped out due to the fact that every player on the team came down with the measles. I don't know if it's like an anti-vax commentary, uh, anti-anti-vax commentary, but... Uh, Jenny McCarthy was that team mom. <laughs> yeah, anyways, it's quite a random little tidbit we get thrown in there. Somehow, by the hair on their chin, they make it into the finals against the Hawks. What are some of your favorite parts about the final game? For me, it's that Bob Miller is the announcer. For those who don't know, Bob Miller is the former voice of the LA Kings. And I never realized how much that added to that last scene because of how often we'd be watched Kings games, we'd be familiar with that voice and that official tone of professional hockey that, that res resonates with me it really plays through that final game with Bob Miller as essentially the narrator of that last game. I just love that that quality to it. And the, just the journal theme, the literal battle of the past, the past demons of Gordon versus this coach, as you mentioned, Banks's rivalry with his former team. There's a lot of little narratives for each player, I think. Then you have Banks and Jesse's tension that's going to be resolved as well. Fulton has to gain confidence in his shot. There's a lot of stuff that just needs to be kind of resolved in this last game that gets done very well. For me, the last game has a lot of things that finally come into fruition. We get the ice skater finally scoring a really neat goal. We also get another goal from Fulton, which is so brilliantly shot with the camera behind the spinning punk and all the players jump out of the way as it tears the hole in the net. We also get some wraparound goals by Banks. It's just really tense. The score is, as we mentioned before, such a strong score. They even bring in the flying V. I thought that it would be foreshadowed. I imagined, at least when I reflected on this film, that this was a much stronger feature in these movies, The Flying V. They didn't even foreshadow it in the practice. I was really shocked. They do bring it in, I think, in the third period of the game to great success. We also have the narrative in the game of Banks being targeted by the Hawks, right? The coach tells his players, drop Banks like a bad habit. I want him out of the game. So now the very tactic that we were ridiculing Coach Bombay for, we see the Hawks now 
appropriating for themselves. And we see the culmination of all of the practice skills that they have highlighted throughout the middle part of the film finally pay off here. So yeah, I really love the penalty shot scenes. It ties very well to, again, our establishing credits with Gordon Bombay's experience taking a penalty shot with Coach Riley and his chance now to impart the wisdom to Charlie. I love the juxtaposition between the crowds, where we have the crowds are chanting Charlie's name and we clearly hear it. We get a sense that there's much more pressure on Bombay to score, whereas the chant here is just more of a supportive chant of Charlie. I love that he, I think, is the guy who gives Charlie some advice. He just quotes Bombay, you know, soft hands. Whereas Riley was telling him, you know, you have to score. If you don't score, you let the whole team down. Just re- really great juxtapositioning going on. And then goes out there without the helmet, just looking like an absolute beauty out there with the locks flowing. It would never, ever happen <laughs> in a youth hockey game. You had a little pro game now. But it just, it really makes it look that much cooler when he scores. I love that he does the triple deke, right? That becomes a cool motif. Kind of going back to that mystical motif that we had with Hans and the sacred space of the, the shop. We have this kind of weird kung fu-like move in the triple deke you know just back and forth of your puck and shooting it but these goalies can't stop that it looks like he could just tap that puck in after that triple deke but he somehow gets it from the red line to the top of the net hits the crossbar in i don't know how he pulls that shot off i love the culmination of it the way it leads into that slow motion shot of him and charlie hitting their hands together my favorite part is the fact that in the last shot charlie is without a helmet But I like to also bring up the juxtaposition of the two coaches. Bombay has learned how to speak to them with distance and detachment, right? He's not going to pressure them to a degree in which they will be psychologically damaged as a consequence of messing up. Whereas the Hawks coach is pushing his players so hard that it's actually counter-effective. It weighs on their psyche and it puts them under so much pressure that they are bound to choke. After the game, we get a a kind of farewell, right? Swan song scene that I was surprised to see, not because I didn't already know that there was going to be two sequels, but rewatching this, I was surprised that they seemed so confident that there yeah, might be a sequel. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to us watching it for the first time in theaters, like you said, how confident it sounds, but also how stoked we would have been that there's even that implication that there's another part to this. Like like you said, the idea that we have a championship to defend. I got the same feeling from this, that sense of like, they knew this, this would be a hit, I guess. Yeah, it seems like they did did know it'd be a hit or they at least left it open-ended at the end in a way that exuded confidence so just for those who don't have the ending fresh in their mind the entire team is lined up outside of a bus in which Bombay is now going to head out to try out for a minor league team before he gets on the bus he tells them quote Hey, Ducks, no matter what happens, I'll see you next season. We have a title to defend, end quote. Turns out he doesn't really see them next season in D2. We do get some of the same players, but a lot of changes and shifts happen that take the Ducks to LA and Hollywood and the world stage. So I want to not go too far into D2 yet. I want to stick with this film and look at some of the critical reviews, both of normal fans and of professional critics as well. So continuing with our theme in which the critics panned these children's-based sports films, Mighty Ducks was no different. As I expected Mighty Ducks to have a lot more generosity given the fact that it really is the first in this series of films. Sure, the Bad News Bears came out before it, but there had been some space and time for a craving to revive again. However, it wasn't enough time, obviously, because 
because the critics were as apathetic and jaded as ever. So it got a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm going to read a few snippets from three critics. Rita Kempley of the Washington Post says, Stephen Brill, who has a small role in the film, constructed the screenplay much as one would put together some of those particle board bookcases from Ikea. I'll leave that quote as that. It simply says what it means to say in that metaphor aptly enough. The next snippet I have is from Janet Maslin at the New York Times. Quote, a reluctant coach of hockey rowdies. Bad News Bears spinoff with no personality of its own. Once again, you get the gist of this. These critics are not able to see the positives because they are so consumed with the fact that they are derivative. It bothers me, though, that a film that does the formula so well can be so pan just because it's formulaic. I want to bring up one last critical review, and that's by Roger Ebert. He says, quote, The Mighty Ducks is the kind of movie that might have been written by a computer program. It tells a story that has been told time and time and time again about the misfit coach who has handed a team of losers and turns them into winners while redeeming himself. I have seen the same plot applied to baseball the Bad News Bears, football, Wildcats, basketball, Hoosiers, and even hockey, Young Blood. The evidence is clear. Hollywood likes this plot. If you are a would-be screenwriter desperate for a sale, rent the videos of all these movies and then simply apply the formula to a sport that hasn't been covered yet. The lacrosse team, maybe. Pay special attention to Hoosiers since it's a good one, end quote. This is funny to me. I have much respect for Roger Ebert. I actually think he is not only a great critic, but a great person. That said, he is phoning in his reviews on this in the same way that the films are supposedly not giving a full effort. And I know that the excuse might be that, well, they don't deserve much of an effort, but he's literally said the same exact thing now three times. <laughs> and so I just find it funny that his reviews are as formulaic as the films. That's a good point. Um, it just seems a little bit of a cop-out to basically write the same thing and not really see what's unique about it. I'll let you now talk about the audience reviews, which sit at a whopping 65% at Rotten Tomatoes, which is much higher than most of these films. Definitely not high, as high as it deserves, but still pretty high. Yeah, so I'd say the audience is much more much more lenient than critics are with this, and that's part of the nostalgic appeal, I'd say. So from one anonymous poster on Rotten Tomatoes, we have their review. Imagine living in a world where mistakes you made in peewee hockey haunt you even in adulthood. That's the reality that Gordon Bombay lives in every single day. I love the way they frame that as like, he is trapped in this nightmare of missing that shot. This Disney classic is one of my all-time favorites. Granted, watching it now as I'm older really makes you realize how ridiculous the story is and how the characters in the tale make everything a big deal that it needs to be. Can you imagine a lawyer losing his job because he refuses to withdraw a complaint to the Pee Wee Hockey League? This movie does have a great story, no matter how ridiculous it might seem. It's definitely a must-watch for any young athlete. I think I agree with their overall analysis of it. Obviously, we went into much more depth of where it goes, but just step away. It is a ridiculous story that can be justified. And finally, Wood says, went to a screening of this tonight that featured bands, improv, and beer. Often these screenings get pretty rowdy, but this time it was basically 90 minutes of super drunk dudes yelling, Emilio! I never laughed harder in my life. 
I love that last review and the fact that it talks about seeing the Mighty Ducks in one of those very fun throwback showings where you have beer, a really cool crowd that's just amped to scream out Emilio. And that's how I like to think of this film. It's It definitely transcends the other films we've tackled so far, like The Big Green and Angels in the Outfield, in which it has a place in popular culture. That was really my biggest takeaway from this film, watching it again, was just how impactful it was in its little nook of pop culture. All right, so I'm here with Justin Peterson, and I found Justin Peterson on Letterboxd when I was researching The Mighty Ducks, and I was really, really impressed with his review. It was extremely thorough and showed so much personal interest and passion in The Mighty Ducks. And I went clicking around, I looked on his profile, I noticed The Mighty Ducks was one of his top four films that he put up on his um, Letterbox profile page. And so I reached out to him, and he came onto the podcast, and I'm very excited to hear from him. So hello, Justin, how are you today? Great, thanks for having me. I kind of cycle through my favorites quite a bit. So I wouldn't say it's in my top echelon of all time favorites, but it's definitely up there. It has that nostalgia feel to it. <laughs> definitely. I actually kind of figured that, or at least I maybe assumed I was, I was curious. Is it your top even sports film of all time, or was it just sort of your top for at that period of time because you had recently seen it. Where does The Mighty Ducks really fit in your hierarchy of favorite film? I'm more of, I would say, an art film, action, um, those kind of film enthusiasts. But uh, gosh, it's just a wide range of movies that I enjoy. And that definitely has its place in like me growing up and appreciating hockey for the first time. Being from South Carolina, hockey was really not a not a presence. But in the 90s, um, we had talked a little bit before the cast about how, you know, rollerblading culture, that definitely ties together with some of the interests I had as a kid. So yeah, it's it's a great it's a great movie that I actually appreciated a whole lot more this time compared to uh, actually my memory of it. Definitely. You brought up rollerblading culture, which is interesting because in your review, you said you remember more than the original Mighty Ducks almost. You loved D2 when it came out, which is where they really kind of get into the rollerblading culture. That's funny because my co-host, Jordan Puga, is not on this interview right now, but that's his favorite film as well of trilogy. At least it's his favorite film when he's nostalgic and thinking back. He hasn't Mm -hmm. seen the movies in a while. And I'm curious to see what his opinion will be now that he's watching them this week. I'm just curious about you. Uh, You seem like you've watched these films recently again. And have you changed that opinion? Yeah, yeah. Recently this summer, I was kind of in a mood to show my kids. I have uh, three boys, eight, six, and three. I wanted to introduce them to these 90s kids sports movies. And they surprisingly hold hold up pretty well. Uh, We started off with Rookie of the Year, uh, which really enjoyed. And then we hit Mighty Ducks. And you were saying that, yeah, you guys had that fond uh, memory of D2, which I saw in the theater and I can totally relate with. But actually coming back into Mighty Ducks 1 and 2 as an adult, my perspective is drastically flipped on um, the nature of how effectively these films do what they're really good at. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm glad that people are coming around as well. Um, in many ways, I have a stronger memory of uh, D2 as well when it came out. Just the campfire scene at the end where they're all singing along. Oh, yeah. And the <laughs> Can't be queen. <laughs> yeah, can't be queen, right? They have a lot of queen in D2. And it's in LA. Uh, very true. One thing that kind of got me watching D2 again is like right whenever like he goes back in the hockey shop and you see like Minnesota Miracle up on like the newspaper headlines. I think D2 is dramatically less interesting now since we actually have a miracle movie 
about the U.S. beating the Soviets in the Olympics. It's almost like this was a great precursor to that. But now that that exists, like this is so much more dated and doesn't exactly work anymore. It's a really, really good point. I never even thought of that. So jumping back to the Mighty Ducks original, what are some of the things that stuck out to you and made you so fond of it after all these years? I love how it takes itself seriously. I recently watched Little Giants and that movie is just about being cute and being silly and funny. But this one is such a deeper story about this guy who had this emotional connection to a sport. Like in the beginning, we see like flashbacks of him playing in front of his dad and really enjoying that memory. But then that gets contrasted with him missing the big shot in that game, which kind of ruins his love for the sport at that point. The score is fantastic. A score from David Newman. It just has this super ethereal feel to it. This emotional instantly gets you connected. I know a lot of times in popular film conversation, people really bash on scores because they manipulate how you feel about something. I totally enjoy that. If music gets me more invested in a story, then I think it's doing its job. And I really like that. I really like how the beginning starts with the black screen and the real bold blue letters very striking yeah it just has this whole like memory field the beginning that's really set up Jordan Bombay's character Emilio Estevez which you got a reference was a night at the Roxbury the Mighty Ducks guy Emilio yeah I agree with you that opening shot right with the bold letters and the flashback and it's a very mm-hmm. like black and white yeah very... it's more of like a it's kind of a sepia look I think yeah is what they call that yeah I'd kind of agree and they put like a very foggy Miss they fog the mm-hmm. yeah right? like a hazy kind of thing yeah. mm-hmm. and I will throw it out there that while the, the those moments are really effective I think they play that card a little bit too much which is understandable because it's a kids movie when you're putting together a kids movie you kind of want to reinforce these kind of emotional notes to like fuel your story mm-hmm. but I think if this was a film for more from an adult audience I don't think they would have gone back to the well so much on that um, I'd also noticed you didn't seem to like so much one of the major moments of drama in the film which was the two players on the team I'm not coming up with their names right now but they uh, overheard Coach Bombay making a sarcastic comment right out of context. Are there any other things that did not sort of age well or that you were bothered by? Or would you like to speak about this situation and what, why it didn't register is necessarily true to you? Sure. One of the film's strengths is the fact that these kids do start off as like the most pathetic hockey players in like existence. And it really takes its time to gradually build them up and their abilities up and make them be able to come together as a team finally. So that long, that slow burn, I think is very effective where like the lower the low the higher the high so once you get to that point where you hear the kid and they keep losing faith in um, Bombay a number of times it's almost like it's a little too much at that point it's like okay they've been down there's no reason to you know go into another third act slump at this point we've been in a slump with this team the whole time and it just seemed really contrived and forced the love story between Bombay and Charlie's mom I mean I guess it helped rounds it out for like a bigger audience maybe a lot of people want to see a romance in a story but I don't really think it really added much but I do really like how Bombay and Charlie have this connection with them losing their fathers. So um, there's another emotional weight that is helpful in that in that aspect. Definitely. I think Charlie has a lot of emotional potency in this film um, mm-hmm. as a player. He's one of the better Disney youth child actors in a sports film in this era, maybe with mm-hmm. Roger and Angels in the Outfield. We're covering a lot of them right now, but he really has a depth and a complexity and you could really like even see the undertones of the emotional baggage that he carries with him, actually. Good old Disney for throwing in some parent death in there 
Spider-Man movies to get you invested. And I, I like that you did bring up the relationship between Coach Bombay and Charlie's mom because mm-hmm. they've already talked about D2 as well. My biggest problem with D2 is the fact that they don't even make an acknowledgement to Charlie's mom. And suddenly he's going on a date with the, you know, the Iceland trainer. And he's kind of got this sort of flirtatious relationship with the team tutor. And that's mm-hmm. the most awkward part of D2 of all to me. Um, yeah, it's very contrived. Other than the the uh, her famous line, Greenland is covered in ice and Iceland's very nice. I <laughs> yeah. remember that to this day for some reason. <laughs> I was yeah. on the same boat. I remember that line. I think my dad would talk about that line all the time. Probably got it from D2. But yeah, that line's yeah. so memorable. Yeah, one of the problems with D2 is it tries to do a lot of the same thing D1, but it's just not as executed nearly as well. I mean, then you see that they did they changed up directors. The director of D2 is not nearly as good as the director of D1. The one last thing I want to mention was they they, they replaced Hans. The, the whole heart and soul of the movie, they put they threw this brother in it instead. I guess the original actor probably looked at the script and was like, yeah, we already did this and this isn't as good, so I'm out. I don't know exactly what happened, but that's what I imagined. Yeah, that was one I was a little bit bummed out about as well, but also a little forgiving about. I mm-hmm. pretty much was like, it seems like Hans denied the role and they still wanted the role and had written the role, so they just made it the brother. It mm-hmm. felt contrived, but it's just like, I understood it because Hans is such a great role. He's that, you know, that sort of sage, like almost Gandalf-esque figure. <laughs> yeah, mythical. Um, Joe's Bombay, you know, his love for hockey again. So yeah. I understood that they were just stretching it to have that same archetype in the second film as well. But it did feel a little bit forced because it was never mentioned in the first one. And obviously it was a scripted contravance to, to make it work. So of the first two films, which player is your favorite and why? Mm, interesting question. I think one of the strengths of the first one is that the whole team gets a lot of coverage. Um, it feels like you do have a good idea of who each one of them is. Actually rewatching it, Averman really stuck out to me. He just always has these little snappy things to say. And I just, I had a blast with that. The little kid from Pete and Pete's in there, which is, mm-hmm. is kind of fun. I mean, Charlie's good. Poor Banks. Banks gets like totally beat up in both of these movies. I don't know why they had to pick on him so much. Going back to Banks, what did you think about the decision of Coach Bombay to go and basically plunder Banks from the Hawks in the first film? Yeah, that's a great point that I was actually thinking about right before we got into this. I think the film is very clever and it actually ties over Bombay's experience as a skilled lawyer throughout. Mm -hmm. So like in the beginning, he has this hard-nosed coach, which is kind of funny that the exact same coach is still coaching the same team, what, 25, 30 years later? (laughs) Pretty wild. But yeah, in the beginning, we see with Bombay's character how like this hard-nosed winner-take-all or win-at-all-costs mindset, you know, it really kind of got him far as his in his career as a lawyer, maybe a little too much. He's a little cocky, which gets him in trouble with the law, which, you know, puts him in this circumstance to be coaching this team. But also, whenever you think about it, like a lawyer is going to look for these different loopholes. And that's what leads him to find that bank is actually playing for the wrong team. So I thought that was a great touch to where Bombay's thought mentality of trying to get edges through what he would do in his professional life actually carries over to him as a coach in the team. And he finds this loophole that puts bank, you know, on his team, which puts them in the best position to win. It's a very good point. Uh, they do tie in basically that character trait in which he is a lawyer. And so he's going to look for loopholes. And this is how he finds a loophole in hockey as well to gain an advantage. Um, I totally agree. And I think it works as well on the underlying sort of socioeconomic interplay that's going on. It's never explicitly talked about. There's, yeah, for there's, sure. The rich yeah. kids versus the, um, you know, the more the misfits. Begin with, they have what they're wearing, like really, really used raggedy stuff compared to like the very pristine look of the Hawks and even I mean how they 
practice is just night and day. And it had even, I think, to be a commentary on how they make cities, right? Because it has to do with Minneapolis and how there's different mm-hmm. I think, precincts or districts. So Banks, I guess, it was just on the line and the line slightly moved. And so that's why he was technically supposed to be on the Mighty Ducks. The one thing I didn't like was it seemed extremely rude, I, just inconsiderate for the psychology of a, of a young kid to take him away from a team midseason and put him on his enemy's team just because of this bureaucratic technicality. I just thought that that was so petty to me. Uh, it had an actual counter effect. It was weird. It was a hard one for me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't really look at it that way, but that for sure makes sense. And even Banks' dad makes that point. Is just like, we're a Hawks family. He has Hawks friends. Hawks, Hawks, Hawks. So well, that's all the kid knows. But that's another testament to Banks because Banks is all about his sport. And no matter what happens, he's going to be playing it. That gets him over to you know do his best job for the Ducks. I think he's a very complicated situation and character. And I actually like it. I like the messiness of it. There is no clear read on whether it was a morally permissible or impermissible action on the side of mm-hmm. Coach Bombay. Now, another question, which is your favorite yeah. villain? We're going to keep it between Mighty Ducks and D2. Was it the Hawks or is it the Icelandic national youth team? I guess it would have to be the Icelandic guy just because what he like goes face to face both Bombay on the ice and he has that whole dirty move. He definitely seems more vicious where the coach from D1 is much more realistic and more of a curmudgeon. So I think D1's a better villain, but I think D2 is definitely a more fierce and menacing villain. He's more memorable almost with his slick back hair and his, his nice tuxedo. I heard he took that look after Pat Riley. You could definitely okay. see that. Awesome. So any last thoughts or things you'd like to talk about in terms of the Mighty Ducks, the first one, the original. I guess the capper has to be like the final hockey scene where you have this perfect combination of hockey highlights, play-by-play announcement, um, that amazing score, and then you get these featured um, moments with the kids, you know, doing plays on the ice. And it all, it all just all comes together, just like the perfect Rocky fight or whatever, in order to give you that perfect blend of a sports moment in a film that really makes you know you should want to stand up and cheer, just like you're there and then in the stadium. It's absolutely a feel-good movie, and it hits all the notes in the, that last game, which is a pretty long last game. I think it's like 20, 25, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. They don't just quickly do the last game. They they hit all the beats and they really build it up. And watching it back, I was surprised how um, I remember the flying V very much being a part of this movie, but that doesn't happen until like the final moments of the game. Outside of the Mighty Ducks, uh, what would you say your favorite sports movie of all time is? Great question. I just rewatched Days of Thunder last night and I think a great characteristic of a sports movie is I don't give a rip about racing. Mm -hmm. But Days of Thunder, for that hour and 47 minutes, I totally love racing. And so one of the best parts about cinema is it can make you care so much about something that you have no interest in. Uh, So Days of Thunder definitely stands out to me. I'm a huge football fan. I have great memories of like Friday Night Live lights uh remember the titans yeah i i should probably watch more sports movies i i spend so much time watching uh classics these days and art film that sometimes you know you just got to hit the pause button and go back go to the well on some of the some of the movies that have inspired your taste to begin with especially sports i like that you wrapped it up in that way because i feel like they're a completely different thing they serve a completely different purpose and that was one of the things that my co-hosts and i were touching upon in our first episode was that sports films are almost like comfort food and we sometimes mm-hmm. forget about them but sometimes you just need to put the pause button on all the really abstract, heady, intellectual ones and go back to those feel-good ones. They stir up and remind you of a certain part of yourself. And, and I almost, I actually came into D1 a little, little bit hesitant because I did remember it being so down with like the players being these misfits like throughout the whole thing. And now as an adult, I think that gives it so much more character because like in D2, they're like awesome to begin with and then they have to come with a contrived reason for them not to be good. Where in D1, it's this slow build all the way to greatness, which makes it an ex- pretty exceptional for 
90s kid sports movie. I mean, there's a lot of good ones. You got The Sandlot and stuff like that too. But um, sure. Mighty Ducks really knocked me out the second time as an adult. Very, very true. And yeah, it's hard. The Sandlot's great. Rookie of the Year is even pretty, is very solid. Uh, there's so many good ones, mm-hmm. but The Mighty Ducks really lives up to your memories of it in ways that uh, actually sometimes transcend your memories because you're like, uh, was it really mm-hmm. as good as I thought? And you're like, oh, <laughs> it's pretty good actually, right? And, and I can't believe we haven't we haven't brought up the fact that it has the the whole bad news bears framework that it's building off of. So in a way you could see it being tired, but I think it does everything like that framework, you know, lays out and then kind of exceeds it. That's a good point. And even the screenwriter noted explicitly that he was setting out to basically remake the bad news bears in a hockey contest. Yeah, totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense. Well, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I know I found you on Letterboxd and I know you have a podcast, so please tell anyone listening where they can find you and how they can hear your podcast as well. Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Um, you can look for me on Letterboxd. Just search Justin Peterson on there. I post quite a bit. And then um, me and my buddy Joey have the Average Joe's Movie Club cast where we just pick from a wide, wide variety of different kinds of movies and share our thoughts on those. In addition to playing like movie games and just talking about any different movie that comes up along the way, uh, look for that show on YouTube and Buzzsprout. And on Twitter, I am MovieJustin198. So I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Same here. Thanks so much. With that, I would say that we are now at the end of our podcast, but we still have to decide whether The Mighty Ducks is overrated or an underdog film. So how would you rate this film? Do you say it's an underdog or an overrated film? I think this is an underdog film. As you pointed out, the critics didn't really like it. It has a niche audience, but upon further exploration, it's a very complex plot that's worth exploring. And I think it's a movie that warranted a second movie, and we got that movie. And for that reason, it kind of blends into how much I like this movie. The the idea that it was a catalyst for something bigger that eventually became a trilogy. Same here. I would be remiss to say that this film was overrated. It's absolutely an underdog film. It aged extremely well. Emilio Estevez is great in this role. To be honest, all of the characters are solid. The dramatic notes in this film all hit. Though there's a few things that I think are kind of unsavory about Bombay, even near the end of the film. I like that. I like that this film's a little dirty around the edges and is a little morally dubious. Next time, we are going to look at D2 before moving on to heavyweights. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on D2 and debating whether you think it holds up as the superior Ducks film in the trilogy. Any last words? No, I look forward to, like you said, hashing out which is better, D2 or Mighty Ducks. That is the debate we're trying to get at. Sounds good. I'll see you next time.